Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Homecoming Podcast. Homecoming is a platform that provides the space for Asians, Asian Americans, and mixed heritage Asians of all backgrounds to share their stories, experiences, and insights about a variety of different topics. Everything from affirmative action to political engagement to Asian representation in media. I'm your host, Angel Rena, and today on Homecoming, I am joined by Anna Nayapatana, a senior at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service, who is calling in from her home in Bangkok, Thailand. And today, Anna will be talking about her journey of better understanding her Asian American and Thai identities, Thailand's pro-democracy movement, and the 2020 protests that have occurred across the country but have been mainly centered in Bangkok, and the huge Thai feminist organization, Feminist Noi, that she co-founded and the ways that she has been active within the movement. So for those of you who don't know, Thailand has a very long history of political unrest and protest, but a new wave began in February 2020 after a popular opposition political party was ordered to dissolve. The growing pro-democracy movement has been calling for the resignation of Prime Minister Prayut Chanocha, a military chief who seized power in a 2014 coup and was later appointed after controversial elections in 2019. Protesters are calling for amendments to the constitution, a new election, curbs on the monarchy and the king's powers, and an end to the harassment of activists and state-slash-monarchy critics. So throughout 2020, hundreds of thousands of protesters gathered on the streets and college campuses all over Bangkok. Hundreds have been arrested and dozens have been injured from things like water cannons and tear gas that the police have used against the protesters. And after there was another COVID-19 outbreak in the country this past December, members of the movement turned to social media and virtual means of protest and voicing their opinions. And another thing to note that is quite important is that for the 2020 Thai protests, people have also started to incorporate um, pushing for gender equality and LGBTQ rights within the pro-democracy movement as well. And that certainly has many implications for the future of the movement and conflicts within the movement that Anna will also definitely touch on today. But that is a very, very short summary of what has been happening in Thailand. And Anna, you could definitely feel free to correct me um, as soon as I bring you on. Um, but I will definitely make sure to also include um, many resources about the history of protests in Thailand, news articles about specific rallies, and more in the episode description. So um, for the listeners who are interested in learning more, definitely feel free to check those out. But Anna, hello. Welcome to the Homecoming Podcast. Woohoo! Thank you so much for coming on to Homecoming today. Um, and I know it's very, very late in Thailand, so I really, really, really appreciate you coming onto the podcast and talking and, you know, sharing more about you and what's been happening in Thailand. Also want to say a huge congrats um, that you're almost finished with your senior year in college, which is crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know you can't wait. Um, so Anna, uh, first things first, would you be able to introduce yourself to the podcast listeners? You can say things like your name, uh, pronouns, ethnic background, where you live slash where you're from, where you go to school, um, and really anything you want to share with the listeners. 
So hello everyone, my name is Anna Nayapatana. Um, my actual name is Akishana, Anna is my middle name. Um, when people ask me where I'm from, I said Bangkok, Thailand, but you know, sometimes you ask where you're from as in where you were born, but I, I was born in normal Illinois, hence I have dual citizenship, American and Thai, but I've never lived in, a, in the United States for longer than three or four months. I've grown, I've grown up entirely in Bangkok. I went to a Thai elementary school, middle school and high school. And then I got a scholarship to study quote unquote abroad in the United States, but I'm not an international student. So I'm currently a senior at Georgetown University. I'm studying comparative politics between the United States and Asia because of my weird relationship with the United States. And um, yeah, I go by she, her pronouns. Perfect. Thank you so much, Anna. Yeah, we're going to definitely go into a lot of um, also your identity. And I think the first question that I actually want to ask you is about your journey of, um, you know, reconciling with and better understanding your Asian American and also your Thai identity. I know um, some time ago you made a, a, a Facebook post about sort of your ancestry and you don't have to necessarily go into that but um I think it's I you you post a bunch of really reflective and introspective things on Facebook which is really really cool and I always enjoy uh, reading them but yeah feel free to go into like just your reconciliation and your journey of uh you know your Asian American your Thai American identity it might be a little bit complicated but I was born to two type parents who got a scholarship to study abroad in the United States when after during the whole entire Cold War period when the United States were really pushing for students from Southeast Asia to go to the United States um, for political purposes. Um, they were both PhD candidates. They, they knew each other beforehand. They married there, they had me there. And then once they finished they got their PhD degree, they, got, they came back to Thailand. And that's why I grew up here. Um, but because I, um, because, I, because I have this, I was born in the United States, I have um, rights, like birth rights, citizenship. So that basically defined my childhood as in, my parents really glorified the United States um, let's just say they were lifted from their previous status as civil officials to those who graduated from the United States. And at least here in Thailand, that is a big status boost if you were to have a doctoral degree and to, be, to graduate from a foreign university. So that glorification of the United States kind of came to me, like I inherited it and I really felt the obligation to learn how to speak English properly. Like my, my both, both of my parents, um, they, they did not grow up speaking English. I always spoke Thai in my whole entire household growing up, but because they told me that, that I was born in the United States and that I have an American passport, I feel that like I needed to know English. So from elementary school to high school, I've been very involved in the English language competition side of Bangkok it happens it happens like in in in, in non-english speaking countries they basically test um students who are not who are english who are learners of english as a second language in their grammar grammatical 
skills, like how much do you know about the English grammar and the pronunciation um, speech? I was very involved in that field and it was probably very likely because I'm proficient in English that I got the scholarship that I'm on now. And that's why I'm able to pursue undergraduate studies in the United States. But ironically, I've always wanted to, you know, return to the United States because I have no memory of what the United States is like at all. Because I, I came to Thailand when I was like three months old. And but I always like I always refer to the United States as like homeland. Like if I were to like refer to <laughs> the name of the podcast, like I was waiting for my homecoming period. Like I was really waiting for that. When when I arrived, everything was foreign. I feel like an international student because this is not a culture that I've grown up in. And um, when I had to apply for college, I had to check that I'm an Asian American because I have um, I, I have a legal citizenship here. I don't, I don't need a visa. Um, but none of my background it matches that of people my age who are usually second generation or third generation Asian Americans who had experienced um, the subjugation, the experience of Asian Americans. Whereas for me, it's more like, oh, I'm, I'm Asian American on paper, but I'm an international student um, technically. And it really it really meant that the support that I would, I would have normally get had I were an international student um, were not given to me. Because there's a lot of, like at colleges, there's a lot of, there's always like the International Student Association and then the, the Office of like Global Services or International Services where they help you with visa issues and help you with issues of, you know, homesickness or like adjusting to a new culture. I, would, I did not have access to that because on paper, I'm Asian American. Um, but I did, I did go there and talk to you know, them that this is my case. I am a little weird. Would it be okay if I were to access these, um, these resources? And even though they did say, okay, there's still some barriers to accessing these resources. And to make, <laughs> to, to say this briefly, I never really, realized that Bangkok is my home until COVID hit because when COVID hit and I was studying in, in the United States and I had nowhere to go. I, I actually have a host family in Virginia and Virginia is like across the Cree Bridge from Georgetown. So they're not living that far from my college. But when I asked them whether I can stay with them, they were like, no, even though they're my host family. So I realized that a host family is, will always be a host. And the only way that you can, like the only place you can call home is a place that will let you be there no matter what, regardless of the situation, like a place where you can sleep and eat. And for me, like that, that is Bangkok, that, that I have not found a home yet in the United States, even though I do want to find home in the United States, I want to also call the United States home one day, but. I guess that day has not come yet, but I still look forward to it. I still feel like there's this longing of wanting to be American, even though I will never be American. And even though national identity are, are fully constructed, there's, there's still this weird sense of longing that, I mean, I study international relations and I know all that, that nationalism is constructed, but there's still this longing. There's still this longing to want to call the United States home.
and I do not understand why. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was going to ask you, like, where do you feel like that longing to call America home? Like, where where do you feel like that comes from? Like, is it from, like, your parents sort of, like, glorifying the U.S.? Is it because you're technically American on paper or sort of like a combination of different things? I feel like it's a combination of feeling that, like, you don't belong either in either country. So when I'm in Thailand, I just want to go back to the United States. And when I'm in the United States, I just want to go back to Thailand. Um, that's, that's, that's pretty much it, I think. It's, it's this feeling of the in-betweenness, being situated in two places. Because so much of my, so much of my childhood and my worldview has been formed here. But pretty much my higher education is in the United States. And when I come back, I could not talk about the issues that I'm interested in, in the language that I grew up speaking, because I was, you know, I, ta- I, I learned about politics all in English. And I had to like relearn how to speak about politics in Thai in order to engage with the activism that is going on here. And that, that, that in itself is already, is already very weird to navigate. But I feel like this longing is, is not something that can mitigated it, it it just stays there and I feel like it's it's inherent to people who are dias people who experience diasporia yeah definitely and I think it's also like pretty crazy to think about you know you talked about how you study international relations U.S. Asia relations it's like you probably have a knowledge of like U.S. politics and history that most people don't yet you're still sort of an outsider or like the country still considers you an outsider, even though you're sort of like a scholar and like very knowledgeable about like U.S. in an academic sense. I mean, I do know a lot about, I mean, I wouldn't say a lot. I, I, I'm still learning about U.S. foreign policy, especially in, in Asia. But I feel like to be American, it's less about knowing about what the United States is. It's, it's about believing what the United States is. And I never really believed in the United States that the United States wants its people to believe because I've grown up looking from the United States from a quote unquote third world country, looking there like, oh, that's the superpower that has been boycotting us for not becoming an actual democracy um, for many years. And, but then when I went to the United States now, I look at Thailand and now I don't see, I don't believe in the Thailand that Thailand wants me to believe in. So now you just don't have, you just, you feel, you long to feel like you belong, right? Like that's, that's a very innate desire of human being is to belong to a group. Um, but when you fail to feel like you belong to a nation, and for me, it's like, I fail to feel like I belong to both of my nations, but that longing is not mitigated. Yeah, and I think it must be especially, I mean, you already touched on this basically, but it must be especially difficult for you, like just having to witness a lot of the protests happening, but sort of as a student abroad, right? And where you're so like physically distanced and far removed from such important current events that are happening in Thailand. And we'll definitely you know, we'll get into sort of your perspectives as a student abroad and what other um, Thai students abroad have been doing about the protests as well. But um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, in the beginning of the episode, I gave a pretty basic summary of uh, what was happening, but I also want to give you the opportunity to speak a little bit more in detail about, you know, the pro-democracy movement, the protests, and your basically your thoughts on what's been happening. So I think first fundamental question that will give uh, the listener some good context is, uh, why did the protests start? Who was involved? Um, you know, where are they taking place and how have authorities reacted so far? I think I have to go back to when I was in third grade for this to actually provide enough context. But when I was in third grade, which is 2008, there was um, a coup that overthrew Taksim Jinawatta, like Taksim Jinawatta, um, who was a democratically elected prime minister back then. I remember when I was in third grade that school was canceled, that they, the coup happened. And all I knew was, wow, there's, mm, there's like army tanks on the, the streets. That's cool. And then when I was in high school, um, it's grade 11. We have a different um, school system in the United States. Um, but during grade 11, there was a, a coup against toxins sister, Yingluck, that happened, that led to the rise of Yuzhen Osha. He was, the, he was the junta leader back then. And he was in power for until 2019. And then there was an election that um, was questionably not, not fair, like not in the United States sense, but like there, it's actually like not, there's cheating going on. And um, and basically the, the party that was formed from people who was used to work for the junta won. And um, as you can see, I'm, I'm 23 and most of the, uh, of the people, like the kids my age, they've already seen two coups. And before these two coups, um, there was already like, there was already like multiple coups. Like Thailand has seen almost like 11 attempts of coups. There's 11 attempt coups. I don't remember how many were successful, but there were 11 attempts of coups. And um, yeah, like we've seen a lot. Uh, I, I grew up in Bangkok and Bangkok is definitely like the hot side of all protests since it's a private city. It's both like, you know, the financial center and the government center. And uh, when it was, in middle school, there was protests against um, against the first coup that I saw in third grade, and and my school was closed down by all the protesters in the area. And then in high school, such protests happened again to the point that my school has to close down. It's 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 very like protests are very common, and I feel like if you were um, if you were, are a young adult of my age or a youth. You've seen so much political, political trauma that you've grown so tired of it that you wanted to bring about change. And with, with, with COVID-19, people, I mean, by people, I mean mostly youth, they've been using a lot more, more internet, right? And by using more internet, like people have been expressing their political frustrations and discovering a lot, a lot about the corruption that has been going on a lot of the issues like a lot of political issues that people have never talked about freely expressed 
on Twitter or Facebook, mostly Twitter, though at least here in Thailand. And um, and they wanted to do something about it. And since Thailand got COVID contained a little bit early on, once the case numbers were in the tens, people start coming out and protest. They discuss when to come out and protest against the junta government. A part of it is definitely resentment and anger about the government's management of the COVID-19 crisis. But I would say that most of it has been harbored since the coup in 2014. That was so long ago. <laughs> the fact it was seven years ago still blew my mind that this man has been in power for basically seven years and no one has been able to take him down. And another Another very crucial aspect that is a little bit risky for me to discuss due to the Les Majest law is that in 2016, um, King Pumipo passed away. And because he passed away, now there's kind of a power vacuum in the monarchy realm. Like, there was, the, like, I mean, King Wajirabut has taken the throne, but he is not as popular as his father was. So the people start questioning the institution of the monarchy. Um, and that coupled together gave rise to a political movement. People are just tired of the state that Thailand has been in. And, and, and social media is a, good, is, is a great way that people can come together and you know, mobilize. I think that's how the wave of protest started. Yeah, I mean, how do you feel like your views of protests that were happening, you know, back when you were in third grade have changed from your views on the pro-democracy movement and the protests that are happening now? When I was third grade, I was like, when will this stop? Like, when will protests ever stop? I'm tired. I want to go to school. Um, that was also the same attitude I had in high school. Even though I was interested in politics in high school, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't attend Georgetown. I was, not, I was not interested in politics, but I've always felt like, I always felt, felt like that protests were not an effective way of, you know, bringing about political change. And it tends to get very violent. Protests in Thailand get violent. Like a lot of, there's a lot of casualties. And, you know, with, even with the latest one in 2020, like where protesters were, they're, like, they sprayed like water guns at protesters and many were injured. So I think that that image of me is like, why can't people just get along and, you know, be happy about whatever, like the state that they're in. But, but I myself grew to have that frust like, political frustration and I understand like why people have to come out and why people have to protest and why people, why, why, why people needed to protest because, because at least in an unjust regime, you cannot trust the system to work itself out because the system is working against you. And you cannot trust that everything will, like, I mean, if you wait for a little bit more and everything will turn out fine because the people who actually hold power will never um, be willing to give, give up their power. And 
the only way any change can be made has to come from the people. And since the system is not accommodating of the people, the people have to come out themselves. Right. Like if the institution itself is like corrupt or just like inherently undemocratic, like you can't trust that it's going to fix itself. Right. And I think there is a lot of history to protests and, um, you know, people taking action in Thailand. I'm curious, um, to your knowledge, how do you feel like the 2020 protests in Thailand compared to protests like back in like 1992, 1970s? I know you weren't, you definitely weren't alive back in 1976, but um, to your knowledge. And also, do you feel like the pro-democracy movement in Thailand has gotten bigger since then and more popular? And if so, why why do you feel like that is? I mean, at least with the the ones that the protest movement that happened way before I was born, um, from what I've heard from my parents, um, it was it was relatively limited to universities. There were not a lot of high schoolers or middle schoolers involved, but with this wave of protests, there's a lot of high schoolers and middle schoolers who are involved. And um, the government has the audacity to, you know, try to jail those middle schoolers, which I don't know what to say about that, but they, they, they did. Um, so that's definitely one difference, like one significant difference. And another significant difference is that the reach, the reach is simply so, so large because of the social media, right? Like, and also who stands at the for- forefront of the movement. Um, the, the protests that I saw in third grade and in high school, those were led by adults. Um, one, one in third grade was by royalists, the royalists who were like trying to oust the prime minister who was taken out of power under the coup with Thaksin, basically. They didn't like him because they thought of him as like anti-royalist. And in high, in high school, that's also pretty much the same force, but it's reincarnation. But there's also this one protest in between by the people who are called the Red Shirts. And the Red Shirts are grassroots movement, also adult, mostly adult grassroots-based um, movement. and. Um, this one really brings back to the student protests of the Cold War era, where there's a lot of students who wanted to demand more, you know, equal, more, you know, social equality, who are being branded communists, were killed for being brand communists, even though they might not have been called communists, but had to had to flee to other countries. It's it's like that, but now that it's not limited to just people who attend university. It's also pretty much anyone who has access to the internet and was quote unquote enlightened by the discussion, the political discussions of um, the issues, the problems with Thai democracy and what one can do about it. And even, okay, so there's a lot of people who are actually out there protesting, right? But on online, it's, it's much bigger. Like there's also a lot of people who aren't able to actually attend these protests because most of them happens in Bangkok city centers. Some of them do not live in Bangkok. I mean, the majority of 
Thailand does not live in Bangkok, of course, but but like they're also supporting the movement on the internet, um, um, spreading awareness, creating content, talking about it. And it normalized talking about politics in a way that before it, on issues that used to be taboo, like the, the monarchy or like gender relations, or I mean, gender relation was not taboo. Let's just say it's just not, it's just not a, an issue that people ever thought about. But now, now like all these young women and young LGBT, I'm sorry, my, 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 <laughs> my tongue like LGBTQ people are like out here um, protesting for their rights. This has never happened before. There's never been a big protest calling for gender equality before. So that's definitely the difference between you know, previous student movements and this particular student movement is that it's definitely more inclusive and, and it's, very, it's very widespread. Yeah, I, I remember when we were talking in the uh, pre-recording meeting, you were saying how, you know, also along those lines, like partially why the movement's gotten so big is that people were finally able to like connect why like their civil liberties to why democracy is important, right? Like your civil liberties can't be achieved under like a military regime, a, you know, an unfair system, a patriarchal monarchy, etc. So do you want to also touch on that? You, you don't have to if you don't want to. No, I, I, can, I can definitely touch on that. Um, but I feel like before... Let's just say in, in school, uh, in the social science class where we're supposed to be, where we're supposed to be taught about the political regime, let's just say that we didn't really learn a lot about personal rights or like what it is, what, what it means to be a citizen of a country or like what, like what a nation state means. And uh, we just learned like, you know, about, mm, not much. Let's just say we learn a lot about the kings. Um, but I feel like social media usage is definitely why more, more people are aware that what they face is not what is just, especially with, with feminism. I mean, I myself am part of that wave who saw Me Too broke out in the United States. And I felt like, oh, wow, all these things that have happened to me and I've never realized that it was an issue before, but now all these people are starting to talk about it. And um, on the platforms that I used, and I think that I'm able to talk about this well, and it's an issue that everyone can talk about now. And it's not something that we have to just, you know, complain to our female friends or like our gay friends, at least in, in my case, but it's something that needs to be made known. It's something that we need actual policy to solve such problems. And um, I think with that, with that awareness from not only social media, but just media in general, and the influx of American-based political movement is definitely why people gain a lot of awareness. And, I mean, with me too, it's not limited to just the United States, right? Like Korea got into, like Japan started to, like many countries that look to the United States when 
there's political movement that gain awareness from that. And I also want to ask you, um, what has been your role in the movement so far? And I'd really love to hear more about um, Feminist Noi and, you know, how that has been contributing to many of the online conversations about pro-democracy and feminism and, and gender equality as well. Let's say, like, first I need to correct, like, feminism is not big. And, like, I, I think I think she overplayed how big it is. It's just, Are you sure? <laughs> it's just a Facebook page, but I, let's just say I jumped on the bandwagon in the right place at the right time because that was when Facebook was still big. It was 2015-ish, 2016. And I just got back from the United States first year, very passionate about feminism. Felt like, why is no one talking about this at all here in Thailand? Have, like, why, why is there no language for this? And I started to like ponder upon the issue of translating, like translation, like how can we make the concept of feminism not white feminism, you know, like not, not like Western based. Um, so I, I started this Facebook page that I, I draw, I, my hobby is drawing. So I just drew like comics of like girls discussing like what feminism is and how it's not limited to just women, but it's like, it's for all like people of, of all gender spectrums and how it benefit everyone. And that post was, I mean, it's the first post on the page, so it is not like big, but people, people think of it as a good idea. They're like, oh, wow, I've never really heard about this term before. And, um, and the picture is cute, so I probably should share it kind of thing. And then I think what started through, like what got my page launching was my comic on rape culture, because I was trying to discuss um, the prevalence of rape culture in Thai media from you know Thai movies, Thai like Thai soap operas, Thai dramas, basically, um, and how these rhetorics are problematic. And even though the word rape culture is definitely like you know translated from you know American gender studies like discussions, it it, it is really applicable like across across countries because it's about the normalization of sexual abuse, right? So that post got so many shares and it got shared by one of like the like a very a very well-known um let's just say it's just like a meme page for some reason um it's it's a it's a page called like drama addict and they just they just discuss anything that became internet drama but that post was not really about like it, it didn't became internet drama but the, the admin was like, this is interesting. Never heard about this term. I think it's important for people to know this. So let's just share this on our drama page. And, and then we got some following. And with that following, I started pushing out things that are beyond just like comics. I start like, I gather a group of friends to help me with the page. Like more people are helping me now. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it alone. It's impossible to maintain the page alone. And there's a lot of people who write articles, like make graphics, and then, you know, post to Twitter about multiple issues that they thought of, that they thought that people should be aware of. And um, one of the issues that really, let's just say, dragged the page into this um, pro-democracy movement camp is when one of my friends wrote an article about 
how gender equality is in like cannot be achieved under a military government and how like you'll never get like gay marriage under a military government as well because technically there's this the, the the law has been in the parliament for some time and since the military government has been here for like how many years now seven years right it's been stalled and stalled because there's this sexist homophobic tendencies in how the military system works um and that that mindset is also transferred to politics when it comes um when they take control and when when a government is not democratically elected there would you would see less representation of women in in the parliament in in government you'll see less representation of lgbtq people in parliament and government as well because if everyone who was elected are, are military men then patriarchy would become a political system that was basically the argument that my friend wrote and that really launched something because we never really wrote um, that explicitly about the, 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 the Thai, Thai politics before. It was usually more like cultural, like, oh yeah, I think this drama has this narrative. What do you guys think about this narrative? Or like, oh, this movie just came out and we think that this movie is very nice. Like we should, you should go watch it. It discussed like a lot of good, a lot of like interesting and nuanced problems about, you know, domestic abuse, for example. But like, but like this is the first time we really touched touch politics and well like people did like a lot of people did like criticize us for like you know saying that gender equality cannot be achieved under a military regime which to me is a no-brainer <laughs> you know when you say military and gender equality you know that's that's too like there's issues of gender equality in the military like anywhere in the world um but with that it was about time that Facebook pages started losing prevalence. Like not a lot of people are using it anymore. I mean, I, I'm going to sound like a boomer, <laughs> but like people who are like three years younger than me, I'm 23, by the way, like people who are under 20, they don't use Facebook that much. And we realized from like the page analytics that we're not reaching that, that, that population. Like that group of people, like that audience is not, is not reading long form articles on Facebook because they don't use Facebook. So we migrated to Twitter. And that was where we realized most youth activists are, act are active there. And there are multiple, multiple people trying to mobilize for pro-democracy there for many years. But, um, but the, the platform is known for being a hub for fandoms. Like, you know, there's like Twitter is very well known for its fandoms. So people who are on fan, like, people who are in fandom tend to be young female, young female audiences. A lot of them are really pro LGBTQ. A lot of LGBTQ are also on Twitter. Not a lot of men are on Twitter. This is very weird. And it, it, it in turn create, like, makes Twitter almost like a safe space for feminists to talk at least in Thailand because like at least like I would say like more not a lot of men use Twitter until like last year until like until Twitter became the mainstream platform for political activists like before like there's like two of my male friends who who approached me last year it's like Anna how do I use Twitter I do not know how to use Twitter no seriously so that short period before 
men start migrating to Twitter, there was this like discussion of how we can make, you know, Thailand more equal gender wise. And um, to the point that there is this slang that came out, out of that phenomenon and they call it fem twit. It's like feminist on Twitter. It's like, like everyone on Twitter is a feminist. Like there's this outsider perception of feminists on Twitter and they call it fem twit as like a derogatory term. I mean, in Japan, they also have the same notion, but it's different. Like they, they call it sweet, sweet fem, fem. It's basically like the same idea, but like in Thai, they call it fem twit. And yeah, so that, that safe space become, become problematized, just to say that. And um, in about in April, I think, when I, when I got relocated from Washington, D.C. to Bangkok due to COVID, I was talking to my friends who I work on with the page again, because now I'm in, in Bangkok time, so I can try to be active with this, I can, I, I can become more active with the community, that I wanted to create some like forum where people can talk about these issues on the internet. And then we, we went back to Facebook because Facebook group was becoming big during that time period as well. And, um, and guess what? All the resistance, all the resistance, all the sexist comments starts flooding in. And there was this whole entire quote unquote like Thailand internet gender war between a group of, they're not outright. I cannot say they're outright because the political spectrum here is very weird. It's, they're, they're like, let's just say they're sexist, even though they're pro-democracy, but they're sexist, they're sexist men. And sexist cis men, there we go, that's the right term. And they basically try to be like, why are the feminists, why are the feminists arguing for gender equality when we don't even have democracy yet? And this entire debate went on for some time until, I mean, not so, it, it, it's still going on, but let's say to a lesser degree because of the success of the movement, because the movement is so, like the people who host, like, you know, the, it's called the free youth, um, the free youth movement. They, like the, their leader is gay. And one of the four forms like activists is, is, is a girl. Like, and she's not a girl anymore, she's a young, young adult female. But to see, to see like a person my age speaking and standing and calling for democracy, like, and she looks like me, it's very powerful. And with like, even the people who were like, no, this like the um, political activism isn't a thing for women because women's are, you know, weak and they're not like, they cannot handle the stress that it is like, required of political activism, that attitude is being, being dismantled because she's so strong. And her name is wrong, by the way, I'm sorry. I'm like, <laughs> I forgot to mention her name. Like, cause there's, there's more leaders who are visibly female, visibly LGBTQ. I mean, in that sense, like people are starting to understand that democracy isn't, isn't just some board game for cis male. You know, it's a straight male. It's it's for everyone. It's not about it's not about power grab. You're not you're not trying to to take back power from the people like from the military just to bring power into another group of men. We're trying to bring back power to the, the, the people themselves. And in order to 
for the, those power to be in the hands of the people, it needs to include everyone. And I mean, that, that debate of being inclusive is definitely messy in its own, but I think it's a form of messiness that, that is necessary if you really are trying to call for a democracy because no democracy is need. Democracy is about negotiating um, different interests in the way that respects um, the voices of the majority without ignoring the minority. And thus it's never, it's never gonna be completely unified. But as long as you ensure that every voice is, is heard and addressed in some form, I think that is when political justice is achieved. Yeah, I mean, you brought up a ton of really great points. I'm curious to hear, like, I mean, I'm sure that conflict between people within the pro-democracy movement is still happening, but do you feel like the leaders or the people at the helm of the pro-democracy movement are, like, more willing to, you know, incorporate, you know, conversations and people who are fighting for gender equality and feminism and you know LGBTQ rights within the pro-democracy movement? Oh, for sure. Like they definitely had like a whole entire, I mean, after receiving criticism online for not having female speakers, like the next time there was a protest, like they invited prominent feminist activists to speak on their stage and talk about how like some of the issues that also were being campaigned along with calls for democracy is um, the call to decriminalize abortion. Basically like, like give women more access to birth control as well as like for those who wanted to have an abortion access to that to safe services. And some groups are also asking for sex work to be decriminalized. Some are asking for it to be legalized. There's that very different notions, but both of like both senses are being discussed openly. Um, I mean, like I would say, like it's pretty much the common knowledge that Canadian sex industry is very big, um, but it's not legal. And because it's not legal, like sex workers do not have protection, like either legal protection or um, health protection that they might need within their industries. And there's like legalization or decriminalization like would be able to address those two issues as well as, as well as human trafficking. So a lot of people are trying to advocate for that as along, along with um, LGBTQ marriage as well. So, so there's a lot of issues of gender equality that's been being pushed along with, of course, like monarchy reform and um, for you to step down. They're, they're, all, they're all pushing everything. And I think that that's important because as I mentioned, like under the sphere of the military government, these issues were basically not of their concern. They didn't really think about, you know, um, abortion rights or like they didn't think about sex workers, right? But now that people like, are calling for democracy, these interest groups are also like, our voices also needs to be heard. And a lot of people relate a little bit, I would say like a lot of people 
a lot of people relate to these concerns more than like a very amorphous idea of like, oh, let's get democracy because democracy is it's a concept. But like if you say, oh, if I I want better access to feminine hygienic care. That that feels tangible to you. That's why people are coming out. Like I don't want I don't want female rape victims to be victim blamed, for example. Like these are more tangible than just like, I want Thailand to have a democracy because in the country where there has never really been a democracy, you do not know what that looks like. But if you're, if you're fighting for one cause or like if you're fighting for something that you can really see results happen if they were, if they were made into law, like those really give you a clearer picture of what a more equitable and just society looks like. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, so, so you would say that internet conversations and social media activism has been effective in pushing the movement forward and like translating into real concrete action within the movement. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would push back a little bit on that as in like, it's been very great with raising awareness um, but it is because the people on the platform were willing to take things off the platform and, and actually advocate um, in real life. If things were to stay on the platform, it would just be internet discussion and no change would be made. But because people were willing to actually go protest, um, changes are made. But yes, definitely, like platforms has been extremely crucial to increasing awareness, as well as promoting those real life causes as well. Because people um, with the protests are mostly flash mobs actually, because um, the government was trying to crack the mob down real time because they cannot announce in advance they're, they're gonna meet or else the government would try to shut um, the, the roads down. So, so like the people who host like, there's no one who's hosting it. Anyone is just like, it's just like tweeting like, oh, let's meet here, let's meet here, let's meet here. And the intel, like the government intel is very confused because it's very, like it's not centralized. Like it's more like people wanting to meet and they start like people wanting to protest and then they, they tweet that they are going to protest and they didn't protest. Like there's this one, one very interesting protest that happened where I think a high schooler tweeted that they wanted to, um, like it would be a great idea for people to come out and run around and sing the theme song from the anime Hamtaro as they say it's like oh all all these governments are corrupt and they eat their favorite food is taxpayers money and they run around um around the the the, the democracy monument i have no idea how what it's called in english but there's this like monument that was created when thailand got became a democracy but it's like people really see how it's ironic that monument stands but we never really have been a democracy so they were like running around that monument and they definitely you know um <laughs> like people were very confused like because it's it's just it's just people coming to run around a monument singing an anime theme song and then they went back home 
and police have no idea how to deal with that because <laughs> it's not, not the typical protest that you know it's just a bunch of high school kids who are just running around the monument singing their favorite childhood anime theme song while also saying that the government is corrupt within the lyrics but then the police can't do anything about it because they're not prepared for these such such tactics um beyond that very weird protest there's also like the idea that um issues are i mean as i just mentioned before issues that were taboo are now spoken openly and so many people who are speaking about these issues openly there's just too many of them that that you know it would be impossible to jail them all it's 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 the openness right like once you have quote unquote a free internet like as an area of free speech it's it's very hard to take it back and people who like even though they crack down on prominent resistant figures people still find ways to you know gain information from those figures yeah i also want to ask you about your experience as a student abroad and your perspective on the democracy protests and the movement as a whole as a student abroad so how do you feel like your experiences at Georgetown and a Thai student studying in Georgetown has made you more attuned to the protest, but also think differently about the pro-democracy movement? Um, so first, I feel like I was definitely fortunate in the sense that, I mean, it's not fortunate that I was displaced because of COVID-19, but the fact that this pro-democracy movement happened when in a year I had to be in Thailand meant that I am able to be more involved with it. Had I were stuck in the United States, I would not have been as involved in it as I am now. Um, but let's say like before, before 2020, when I was at college, you, I mean, college students talk about the college bubble all the time. And, and it's not limited to just, you know, students who, are more concerned about what is going on in their college um, than things that are going on outside of college. For me, it's like, I'm more concerned about the country that I'm currently in than the country that I'm currently not in. And even though Thailand is, I mean, as I, told, as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, I consider my home, like, I just don't know what's going on. Just simply because I don't have access to information about what's going on. Even though I did like, you know, read the news, News are very filtered. There's, it's different compared to, you know, actually being in the city and seeing how people are feeling, how people are vibing in general. Um, that, that, that definitely feels a sense of removal. And with Thai students in the United States, Thai students in the United States are, are privileged kids. I have to admit that. I mean, I got a scholarship. But most of the students who can afford an education abroad had money. And with money comes a degree of um, security where you can have political ignorance and you still be fine. And a lot of them are definitely politically connected to powerful people in Thailand themselves. 
So speaking out about politics, about Thai politics is taboo. But with this movement though, um, I have to give credit to my friend Narin Jinasatian, who is um, the president of the Georgetown Thai Cultural Club, who also is displaced in Bangkok like me, thought that it was just not, it, it just, it's just weird that students who, like just because we are students abroad, we're not saying anything about what is going on in Thailand. So, so he started this like coalition of concerned Thai students abroad where he just tried to um, like, well, like where the group reached out to multiple universities across the world and had like Thai students abroad sign petitions that they, they what's the word? They renounced the, the violence that is being used on these pro-democracy protesters. And that, that was probably one of the first times that Thai, Thai, like Thai students who are living abroad are being recognized as a political agent. And um, I would say that technically with democracy and the idea of, of modernity <laughs> as a whole, comes from students who have the opportunity to study abroad. Um, a, lot of, a lot of activists, a lot of politicians who are pro-democracy right now are people who have studied in the United States, in, in the United Kingdom, in France, where they've been given this, they've learned about these ideas about civil liberties and personal liberties. So it's rights and human rights, all these ideas. But with that also comes a degree of skepticism, at least on my part, because like, simultaneously, while I'm scrolling my Twitter feed, seeing all this protest that is going on in, my country, in Thailand, in Bangkok, I see like Black Lives Matter protests like, going on in the United States as well. And my experience like living in the United States and my perception of the United States before I came here was very different. I, I really did glorify United States as like this perfect democracy where everyone lives and have like rights. You know, if you watch only American TV where it's like not, you know, I say Disney Channel. I did I did grow up watching Disney Channel. So it's like, wow, like there's like there's so many like kids who look like me and they're all living in harmony. It's not mean girls, you know. So <laughs> so that was the perception that I had. And then I realized that America's Americans democracy is as fragile as as any democracy can can be despite its rhetoric about being the guardian of democracy around the world i mean my school like the school of foreign service like they you know they they are the champion of that american liberalism where they really believe in the promotion of democracy in like international promotion of democracy and they have this like slogans like a century of service to the world, but then it's it it becomes very dissonant dissonant cognitively for me <laughs> to try to understand that a country that is trying to promote democracy struggles so much with democracy itself. But the way that I reconcile it, it's that um, that democracy is never perfect, and everything like. People need to constantly discuss who are being ignored in order for them to be included. Because, of course, people in power does not like giving their power away. 
that is definitely one thing. And the other issue with it, I definitely, I mean, that sentiment is why sometimes when I see pro-democracy movements, um, a lot of pro-democracy students were like me before I came to the United States, right? Like, yeah, like our country is so stuck. We're stuck economically. We're stuck here in Southeast Asia. We've never become like, we have never become a powerful um, Asian country like South Korea or Japan because we don't have democracy. Um, and because we're not like the United States and we're not best buddies with the United States. And I mean, with all the things I've studied, right? Like I know that there's much, there's more factors to why, to why countries who are quote unquote developing stays developing. It's, there's the economic structure that works that way um, in which, you know, um, raw materials needs to be made here and then been industrialized elsewhere. And that whole entire model was, was, was funded by the United States um, through Japan and then through Japan to Southeast Asian countries because Japan is a big American ally. And well, I, mean, I mean, those are like very big issues, but you cannot really go into big issues when you're talking on like Twitter with 270 character limit, right? So I understand that that United States democracy is not perfect. And a lot of the democratic problems that Thailand has itself is a product of United States intervention. But that doesn't mean that the call for democracy is any less legitimate. It just means that I would say America has to even look at itself, whether it's call for democracy um, it's called for it needs to fix its own democracy first before it's trying to fix other countries' democracy, and and also like let the democratic movement that is going on in each country like unfold on its own. And I feel like at least with with Thailand democracy movement, it's going to become a very a big area of security interest for the United States due to rising tensions with China since. Since Thailand is a big United States ally, but it's also leaning a lot towards China um, under the five, um, under seven years of the military government. So I would, it would be really interesting to see how, how American involvement would, would continue to affect Thai politics and whether, whether or not, like, what will come out of this democracy movement, because I mean, it's been going on for almost a year, at least the 2020 wave. Um, and there's no, like, I feel like people are, are tired. Like there's a lot of, it, it's, it, it is very taxing to keep, you know, keep coming out and then being jailed, being captured, being released, being jailed again. It's been this cycle all the time, but the people in power has not, not done anything and because these protests didn't go that violent from the protester part they had no excuse to start cracking down so there's no like resolution but i feel like at least i mean it's more like a gut feeling than anything but i feel like a lot is coming this this coming year like once once covid is is like less of a concern I definitely feel like 
like pull it like big political change is brewing. But I said it's got feeling. And I I wish that like I mean I can only hope that it is for for the better like for a better, a more equal, a more just society. Yeah, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I definitely was really curious to hear um, about your perspectives in like the academic sense about sort of the romanticization of like American democracy and stuff like that. Um, But to sort of, one of the concluding questions I wanna ask you is, um, do you feel like the movement is heading in the right direction? Um, What do you feel like the movement needs to do in order to create actual constitutional change? Um, yeah. Well, big question. I was like, big question. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, wow. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a little bit of a, the academic interest side. Um, my special interest is in understanding Thailand legacy and comprehension of its relationship with colonialism. And because Thailand has never been formally colonized, um, it has this sense of exceptionalism that like, it has this sense of Thai exceptionalism that it is not like other Southeast Asian countries. However, if you look at um, Thai politics and Thai quote-unquote democracy, like a lot of the issues that are going on in Thailand is shared, but it's Southeast Asian neighbor. Like you can see the same issue going on in Myanmar right now. And I mean, they're actually adopting many of the symbolisms that the Thai protest movement has used, like uh, has, has used, like for example, the, they, um, in Thailand they do the three finger salute, it's taken from the Hunger Games. Now that a coup has happened in Myanmar a couple of days ago, they're also adopting the same, the same three, three finger pose because that's how the internet is connected because you know, like people in Myanmar also consume media um, from Thailand. And, and I feel like, a good way to to move into this democracy movement is actually to to mobilize with other countries in the region, like other activists and also in the region who's also wanting to create change in their own country. Because if you have this sense of exceptionalism, you might not understand that the reason why the system is not working is a product of a historical legacy that that is that is very hard to undo but if you look at it like if you look at it as like a, a regional trend maybe it would be easier for for the movement to understand where it should like why it is a, like why why the movement emerged from the first place and where it should go um Maybe that sounds a little bit too like, you know, comparative politician, like comparative politics scholars of me, but, but definitely, definitely that. And also the other aspect is you need to really find, this is very idealistic, so I apologize, but you really need to find the notion of democracy and an equal society that is not completely tied to the idea of Western modernity. Like, like you cannot like refer to, you know, the glory of, of like ancient Greek and its democracy, because there's no pathos. There's no, like, like, the, like the common people who have 
who are raised in Thai culture and speak Thai would not, would not feel like the pathos to want the form of faith and democracy, right? So, so there's definitely need to be, I wouldn't say like base here, but more like localized understanding of what equality means. And it can be relative. You can understand it relative to um, Western's ideas of democracy, but if it's completely based on Western ideas of democracy, then it would be very hard to, to call for, to, to achieve it because the conservative and the nationalist side of the country would always dismiss it as you're being influenced by foreign ideals. When in fact, I, 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 this is what I've been, I believe, um, when in fact, equality is, the concept of, of equality is not inherently foreign. Like you can definitely create a more just, a more, a more nice society for people to live in if, if I were to use like simple terms, regardless of what culture you're based on, like there's a lot of, you know, Asian culture debates, basically, it's the same with, with um, mainland China, where they're like, oh, yeah, like democracy is incapable with Asianness. But that's, that's, that is, that is not a fact that's still debatable. And, but how do we make democracy compatible with, with Asian culture is what we should be asking and not that democracy is inherently um, incompatible with Asian culture. Yeah, I mean, the how like you, you just have a lot of knowledge. I know from like your experience at Walsh School of Foreign Service. No, no, so. no, no. <laughs> I suck. <laughs> I am not a good student in any in any shape or form. Do not do not glorify me. I barely I barely do anything with my Georgetown education. I just spend most of my day at Georgetown. Um, what do I even do at Georgetown? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what do I even do? I just like lead the Buddhist club. That's pretty much all I do. <laughs> anyway, like I'm just here like, oh yeah, comparative politics, US-Asia relations. Okay, okay. <laughs> but it's it's very impressive. Like I, I, I really appreciate you, you know, sharing your insights. And um, I think, you know, for me and like for the listeners, hopefully we continue to stay plugged in and, you know, aware and knowledgeable about um, upcoming events and, you know, the pro-democracy movement, the future of it that's happening in Thailand. Um, we're tuned into your gut feeling that a lot is going to happen um, in 2021. So we will see. Um, Anna, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, last thing before you go, um, if people are interested in reaching out to you to ask any questions about what you said today, uh, or if they want to get involved with Feminist Noi, or if they live in the U.S. but want to participate in the pro-democracy movement in Thailand, like what can they do and where can they uh, reach out to you? So you can reach out to the Facebook page, Feminist Noi, N-H-O-I, or the Twitter account by the same name, at Feminist Noi. M-H-O-I. Although all the all the content are written in Thai, like I assure you that um, when my team and I reply, like we'll we'll be able to reply to any of your concerns and questions in English. 
Perfect. Thank you so much, Anna, for being on the podcast. And to the listeners, I will make sure to put all of the links to Feminist Noise social media and other resources in the episode description for your easy access, just in case you want to learn more about the pro-democracy movement in Thailand or are interested in getting plugged into Feminist Noi. But I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to Homecoming, follow us on social media at Homecoming Pod, give us those five stars, and leave us a positive review on iTunes. And I will see you all next Saturday with a brand new episode.